Hello, and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the talking points you hear in favor of basic income is that there's no wasted money or very minimal wasted money on bureaucracy or administering who gets it and who doesn't because it's a universal program. And that is in stark contrast to the entire welfare state, which all, all of our various programs contain conditions and uh, various filters for who gets it and who doesn't. And we sometimes talk about these inefficiencies, but there is a very profound human cost to these inefficiencies. And our, our guest today is very well acquainted with those. So I had a chance to sit down with Leah Hamilton. She's an associate professor in the Department of Social Work at Appalachian State University. And she recently came out with a book entitled Welfare Doesn't Work, The Promise of Basic Income for a Failed American Safety Net. And so I got a chance to dig in to conversation with her to actually understand what that actually means. So here's Jim's conversation with Leah Hamilton. Leah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you recently published the book, Welfare Doesn't Work, The Promise of Basic Income for a Failed American Safety Net. Can you talk a bit about what, what led you to write this book? What was the motivation for doing this project? Absolutely. So I have, uh, I'm a social worker and I have been working with um, child welfare and poverty for the last 15 years. As a foster care caseworker, I saw a lot of families who were falling through the cracks and ending up in the foster care system simply because the safety net couldn't support them. So the, the best case I give in the book is a family where there was a single mom dedicated, five kids. One of them had severe cerebral palsy. And this kid required around-the-clock care. He had a G-tube for feeding. He needed help with dressing, bathing, all of those things. Um, so 24-hour care, basically making it almost impossible for his mom to hold down a job. So her choices were to somehow raise five children on the tiny little bit of public assistance she could get, or she could uh, surrender her son to foster care. Uh, and the, the assistance she could get would be maybe TANF if she was lucky for a few years, which is a few hundred dollars, maybe housing assistance if she's lucky, maybe uh, you know a couple hundred more in food stamps. But when her son entered foster care, his foster parents, because of this high level, level of needs the kids had, uh, he they got $3,600 a month to care for him. And this was 10 years ago. Who knows what it was, knows what it is now. So and that so that family was separated simply because they didn't have the safety net to support them. And it was really hard on the family. The mother felt like a failure. She became depressed. She pulled away from her son. That relationship was severed. So that was really my first clue that something was drastically wrong with the safety net. So I started a PhD and really started researching our safety net. How does it help people reach financial independence? How does it not? And what I really came to is it doesn't. It makes it impossible for families to become financially self-sufficient. The best example uh, that I've been work doing my research over the next last few years is asset limits. So we know that the ability to accrue assets is crucial for a family to be able to escape poverty. And that's simple things like, do you have a couple thousand dollars in the bank for an emergency for your card breakdown? We know that most Americans don't have a small amount of savings for those sorts of emergencies. And public assistance programs penalize people for having those assets. So how in the world do you get yourself up out of 
out of poverty, out of assistance, if you can't even build a tiny um, amount of assets. Most asset limits are somewhere in a neighborhood of $2,000. That means that if you have more than that, you're kicked off the system. Um, And I started looking at what happens when states lift those limits, what happens when states eliminate those limits. And families actually do better. They actually leave the program faster. So this has really gotten me to realizing that all of the limits that we set on making sure that that people aren't taking advantage of the system are what's actually keeping them in the system. So, and at the same time, we are we're dehumanizing the poor when when we do all sorts of we spend all kinds of money, way more money on the middle and upper income groups to make sure that they can move forward, build assets like the mortgage interest deduction, right? So that it's in the government's best interest for me to have to own a home. So they let me deduct my mortgage uh, from my taxes. So we really have these two categories of welfare expenditures for low income and upper income. And, and we treat lower income people with skepticism and upper income people. We assume that, that just like Adam Smith said, if they work to advance themselves, then we all then we all benefit. So uh, I just, I was done trying to decide how to make those two systems work. And I think that a basic income could, could level the field and, and, and truly make opportunity equal for all. Yeah. So one of your chapters is, as, as you were just mentioning, the, these two tiers really of our welfare state. And, and that's not typically how people think about it. You think welfare state, you think just support for poor people. But I mean, I think it is like, who is government spending money on? There's some on poor, but actually a lot more on, on wealthier folks. So you talk a bit in the book about how, how this came about. Can you share some, and, and I think it's not, I, I think people often focus on just policy side, but looking more broadly at the cultural narrative surrounding it. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting how that happens. Uh, so I think a lot of us that follow public policy know that Scandinavian countries have much more equal social safety nets, but they also have a much more homogenous population. And, um, you know, when anthropologists, sociologists realize that it's a lot easier for people to have empathy for someone who looks like them. And American politicians who want to divert funds away from social safety net programs can really exploit that, can exploit the fact that people are fearful of someone that looks differently from them, who lives a different life from them. So they've been able to do really covert things. I mean, the the most obvious example that people talk about all the time is Ronald Reagan's welfare queen, right? So he told this story on the campaign trail of a welfare queen who was, you know, had... 30 social security cards and was collecting VA benefits for four dead, uh, non-existent husbands, you know, yada, yada, yada. And he said she was from Chicago. And so all of those bring to mind when you think about it, subliminally an African-American woman. And this woman did exist, but she also was a suspected kidnapper, a suspected murderer. So this woman was an anomaly. She was a criminal, but Ronald Reagan exploited that as, see, this is how the system works. This is, she's just one of the many that are taking advantage of our system. And because people are fearful of someone who looks different from them, uh, they can, that they easily 
are swayed by that are easily um, can turn their vote on on things like that. And then ever since then, we've had politicians who really exploit that too, who can who can use those dog whistles for race politics, uh, for us versus them politics, to say yes, it's fine for. Uh, corporate America to get welfare because they are helping our economy, but but the poor are the ones that are are leeching off the system. And and it's all really, really covertly, to be honest, I believe, about race politics in America. So a lot of this book is devoted to contrasting these current welfare programs that, that you touched on to a universal basic income. And listeners to this podcast most likely already have a good general understanding of some key differences in this space, but you really go into quite a bit of depth on this. Can you share just what are some of the important points of contrast that people already familiar with UBI might not know or might not typically think about? It's hard to cover a piece of the human experience that basic income doesn't improve, right? So we know that it improves income. We know it improves employment and improves mental health. It, it increases high school education for, uh, for youth and increases family relationships. The, the Cherokee Indian study was really fascinating about how it improved the family interactions. Uh, and if you think about it, if a family has less economic stress, then they're better able to parent. Um, and I see this all the time in the foster care system when families have financial stress, when you're stressed out, it's hard to be a good parent. And so, you know, alleviating that stress makes people better parents. So we see fewer children needing uh, foster care. Uh, we see health and mental health improving because when you're not stressed about money, your your well-being improves. And we know that Evelyn Forger had found community-wide impacts like lower hospitalization rates. So one of the things you talk about in the book is how often the lack of success of social programs is used rather instead of being a motivation for approving them as justification for actually cutting them or adding more requirements to access which nearly always then makes them less effective. So I'm wondering, do you have concerns that the, the premise here, that welfare doesn't work, could potentially be misused and be used as justification for, for further pushing things in a bad direction? Absolutely. Um, you know, of course, I'm always worried that someone will pick that up and say, we should just cut welfare, period, and forget about the but basic income as a better alternative. I think my intention with that is that I think there's general agreement on both sides of the aisle that it doesn't work. The social safety net doesn't work. People, you know, I live in rural North Carolina and my neighbors can see that welfare doesn't work and they might have very different policy solutions for it um, than I do, but they can see that it doesn't work, but they can see that it, you know, they might believe that that their neighbors are dependent on those programs because they just can't get it together, uh, but the but the data says otherwise. The data says that the policy doesn't work. So I hope that that is something that can bring people together. We generally agree that welfare doesn't work. So what does the data say does work? And I hope that we can come to basic income does work. And even on both sides of the aisle, I hope we can agree that more government in people's lives doesn't work either. Um, I think that that's, you know, a, a talking point on, on for Republicans and Democrats that when you paternalize people, when you're um, when you're 
in their homes, in their lives, bad things happen. So you mentioned at the end of the book a number of different policy ideas related to UBI that people are currently considering in the U.S. I'm curious, given your expertise in the welfare space broadly, do you have one or several really preferred approaches amongst the different ones that people are currently discussing? My favorite one is the one that works. And by works, I mean the one that's going to get passed. So there's a lot of ways that you can fund this. There's a lot of ways that you can implement it. All of them are better than our current system. So there are projections that funding this through a national deficit actually grows the economy rather than funding it through other ways. That might be a political non-starter. And if that's the case, then I don't want that because I want whatever is going to pass, right? We need to get there. If people think that that solar dividends is the way to go, let's do that. If if cryptocurrency is going to do it, let's do that. I mean, there are people, I'm a social worker and I know people are suffering right now. So let's do the one that's politically viable because that is really the big question. The question isn't, does welfare work? The answer is no. The question is, does basic income work? Yes, it does. And so how do we get there right now? That was Jim Hugh and Leah Hamilton on the Basic Income Podcast. It's obviously easy for me to understand how people like us would, would get into basic income and sort of come to these issues later, issues around the efficiencies of welfare. But it's interesting to me that she is very enmeshed in the intricacies of the welfare state, and she also gets to basic income instead of saying, let's just fix these 10 problems and we're good. To her, it seems like the, the problems are not fixable because once you try to um, fix the, the issues around welfare, you, you inevitably run into these, these issues around deservingness. If you're going to say these people get it, these people don't, then you know, politicians have to make that decision. And it's always going to be politically tempting to some people to demonize the people who are getting it. Yeah, I feel like this touches on a, a tricky area. And, and we did talk about this in the episode, but the, the challenge was saying that things the way they are are not working. Right. Because that has so often been used to provide an excuse to cut back. And so I think that there is, it's something, this is honestly something I've wrestled with for years is a recognition that, yeah, our system isn't working right now. It is not doing nearly enough for people. And how do we acknowledge that and improve things in a way that doesn't put people at risk? And so I, I'm not sure that I completely agree with your take that, I mean, yes, certainly she said it's not working now, basic income is better. But I think I also heard from her that, that there's things we can be doing with what we have right now that do make them better. And so it's not, it, in my mind, it, it can't really be an either or. We should simultaneously be saying, let's make things that we have better at the same time as we fight for the North Star of basic income. Because I think if you're not, if, if you'd let go of either of those, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, and I think the ways, at least from, from what I heard her say, the ways you would make it better are moving toward more universality, right, exactly. essentially. Um, and, you know, hopefully raising how much people actually get. But, yeah, I, I think it's, you, you can move toward the principles of universal, unconditional income, cash-based programs, um, in the hopes of one day getting to an actual UBI. Uh, but yeah, you're not steering yourself, I don't think anyway, steering yourself away 
from a basic income by improving these welfare programs. Though, yeah, I hear all the time, like, well, what if, you know, we, we've got all the, the programs we need to, to help people, you know, why add this whole other giant thing on top of it? Right, and I think that, well, I would say the first part of that is a profound misunderstanding of what's there. And that's why I think you, you do see a lot of people who work with the existing programs. If you're actually in it, you know it's not working well enough. There is no one who actually has familiarity with our current system who says it's doing everything it needs to be doing. And so I think that that's that, but coupling that with, again, the fear of what sort of, when, when you acknowledge that, what ends up happening, I, th I think it's really tough. Yeah, and I think that ties into how, at the end she was talking about how um, she just wants whatever is politically viable. It doesn't have to be a perfect program. Right. Um, in fact, you know, the perfect program is probably the enemy of the, the politically viable program here. And I think that speaks to how close she is to the issue. Like she's not, you know, just on a podcast talking about how, yes, there are problems. She is meeting these families who are, are getting separated, who are, you know, the, literally parents losing their kids to the foster program um, because our, our programs are failing them. And so, yeah, if I think you don't want to see one more family go through that. And, and obviously many, many more will. Um, but if you could just fix it even a little bit, uh, I think that, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense being as close as she is to the issue. And zooming in a bit, I thought it was actually really good and important that so much of the focus of her book and our discussion was around asset limits. That's not really something we've talked about too much on a podcast. But I mean, talk about perverse incentives with social programs saying that you can only continue to receive support if you don't have more than a couple thousand dollars in the bank. Savings are one of the most effective ways at helping people actually achieve long-term success. And so the fact that our programs are basically hamstringing people to prevent them from achieving this, it's just so problematic as far as actually helping people escape poverty. Yeah, and I think, you know, we can talk about asset limits in a reasonable way if we're talking like $50,000. Like, okay, then, then it seems like you're on your feet. Like, then, then maybe we, we can wean you off the program. But yeah, 2,000 bucks is like, that's, that's nothing. Like that's, yeah, that means as soon as you start to get going, then the thing that maybe helped you get off your feet a little bit is, is cut out from under you. So yeah, obviously that's, you know, a, a good target I would say for anyone interested in, in trying to improve things at the state level would be yeah. to, to go after those. Yeah. And sadly, a lot of it is federally mandated, so there's only so much you can do, but, but for certain programs, yeah, and, and certainly making sure your state programs are not enforcing that. The other thing that really stood out to me in, in the way that she talked about all of this is the reframing, basically the reframing of subsidies as another welfare state, which it basically is. Like when, if you're getting money from the government, like that's just a form of welfare, the difference is we typically don't think about it when it's going to rich people as welfare. But if you do put it in that frame, it suddenly becomes so obvious how it's, yeah, our system is just designed in two entirely different ways and really highlighting the lack of trust that we have around poor people, whereas rich people, oh yeah, it's fine if you're getting support. It's good if you're able to work the system to get that support. And so, yeah, I mean, just such a double standard there. Yeah, I almost wonder if there's a useful rebranding that you could do just to refer to you have received money from the government, whether it's it's not good, it's not bad, like corporate welfare sounds like a bad thing. Welfare is a very mixed fraught term itself. 
Yeah, and but we don't we don't think of it as welfare. It's like you're trying to make some some joke or like say that you know trying to call people out if you if you're saying they get money from the government. Whereas like if you get money for putting solar panels on your home, like I, I don't mind. Like that's a welfare that I like. So yeah, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe welfare is, has run its course there. I remember a meme going around not too long ago where the prompt was. What's classy if you're rich and trashy if you're poor? And the answer was getting money from the government. Yeah. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And we'll see you next week.